Welcome to MPs in Depth, where we get to know our representatives beyond their stuff headlines and community event appearances. Today we have Paul Goldsmith, List MP elected in 2011 and National Party spokesperson for finance. Also, according to Twitter last month, New Zealand's most attractive MP. Welcome, Paul. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Normally I'd dedicate this entire episode, Paul, to asking about where you went to university, your second favourite kind of chocolate biscuit and the like, but I think I'd be remiss not to discuss economics before we go there. Things are looking pretty bad. We've already seen some measures rolled out by the government to mitigate the impact of COVID and a recession, but there will obviously be more to come. What are you imploring them to adopt? The... uh... If you look at it most directly, the most important thing is to get Kiwis back to work uh, as soon as we can, as soon as we safely can. And uh, that means um, uh, you know, being sensible and pragmatic about the lockdowns. Uh, we, we've been making the point that, uh, yep, we all sort of agreed going into lockdown four or so weeks ago. Uh, we went hard, uh, as it turned out, substantially harder than the Australians uh, when it came to a lockdown. Now that we've had uh, four or five weeks of experience and we've seen quite clearly that the Australian uh, version, which is much looser, which has enabled construction to keep going, a lot of retail, uh, and that has led to very similar health outcomes, uh, then I think we need to to flex and be more agile and uh, uh, open up the economy more rapidly. So that's the most important thing we can do uh, to respond to the the crisis. Uh, And then acknowledging the fact that if we are uh, continuing to carry on with a very conservative lockdown, then there is a justification for more business relief in order to try and reduce the number of job losses. So I don't think we can blame the Labour Party you know, four weeks ago when they initially made this decision. Sure. At what point do you think they started to get things wrong? At what point should they have taken a step back and said, actually, this is unnecessarily restrictive on business? Or maybe it was four weeks ago. What do you think? Oh, look, I just think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think uh, that you need to be agile in these circumstances. And uh, the Prime Minister at the start was talking about the potential for 80,000 deaths and, and uh you know, real trauma. It became quick, you know, reasonably quickly apparent that we uh, in New Zealand, as a small, isolated economy, uh, relatively sparsely, sparsely populated, like Australia, uh, that we'd be able to manage a lot better than that. And so, uh, look, I just think when they came to the decision to uh, a week ago, I think they missed an opportunity to get us out of lockdown faster and open up the economy faster. And uh, that'll just mean that'll make it much tougher for the, you know, the many businesses around uh, New Zealand. You know, it's, it's very, very difficult to survive, uh, you know, seven weeks with zero revenue, as uh, many small businesses are discovering. And uh, there is a, a sentiment out there that uh, amongst that small business, small business community, that uh, there is very little sympathy for their situation or understanding of it amongst government members. And the most dramatic example of that, of course, was Deborah Russell uh, at the uh, committee this week, uh, sort of basically saying, "Well, you know, if you can't survive for, without the revenue for a few weeks, maybe you shouldn't have been in business in the first place." Which uh, I think was a, a very unfortunate thing to say. Do you think that problem is indigenous to Deborah Russell or do you think actually we have a slightly more widespread problem of a 
whole government or a majority or a large portion of a government that fundamentally doesn't understand what it's like to do business? Yes, I think that is a, it is a real issue with this government. One of the strengths of the National Party is that we have a 55 people with a wide range of backgrounds, many of whom have had um, you know the experience of making uh, creating their own businesses, of being self-employed, uh, as well as a whole host of other things. And uh, there doesn't seem to be many people in the government uh, with that kind of experience. And uh, you see it time and time again. Uh, we heard it with the Prime Minister's comments, uh, oh, oh, it's only extending it for two working days, uh, when, you know, actually it's <laughs> people do, some people work on the weekends, uh, and particularly if you're in retail or, or uh, hospitality or all those things. So uh, that I think there is a naivety and uh, a lack of appreciation for uh, just um you know the, the the critical role for for business in in driving the economic growth and prosperity that we all enjoy, and just how difficult that is. So globally and in New Zealand, we're seeing increased central bank interventionism, building on habits formed mostly over the past ten years. Do you see this trend as a positive or negative development? Uh, it, it brings real real risks. Uh, long-term, the quantitative easing, uh, and who knows how it will unwind. We still really haven't unwound globally uh, the, the quantitative easing that started during the global financial crisis. And um, I don't claim to uh, to be um, any wiser than uh, many people who struggle to figure out what the, the consequences of it are. Uh, the thing that worried me this week in New Zealand was that the, the governor of the Reserve Bank, uh, who started um, a program of buying up uh, government bonds on the open market, uh, suggested that he was open to buying them direct. And, and people might say, well, what, what's the difference? Uh, well, well, there is a bit of a difference in the sense that, in effect, the Reserve Bank would be funding the government directly creating money for the government to spend. And, you know, there are real hazards in that. Uh, the Australians have recently ruled it out. But, you know, the, the, so th there's a lot of experimentation going on in monetary policy. And the further you go away from uh, orthodox approaches, the, the greater the risk that um, some very unintended consequences will be built up over a long period of time. So if you were in the room with the people making those decisions, you would advise them or at least warn them against doing it? Well, uh, if I was in the room, my first and utter focus would be on getting out of lockdown as soon as we safely can, uh, then doing the effective business relief uh, so as to reduce the number of people that lose their jobs in the period of disruption, and then having a real focus on rebuilding the economy uh, so that we can succeed in a post-COVID-19 world. You know, so... We, we, we all wanted to flatten the curve. Uh, there's no need to flatten the country uh, as well. And so that's what we want to avoid. So getting back to work. I think that's a critical thing. Now, and you, you can you can come up with all, uh, all sorts of other experiments and, and uh, government spending, but uh, that's the critical thing and would make all the difference. Right. But I think, you know, a fair few people are quite worried about this kind of central bank activity. So I'm, I'm not sure we can entirely put it to the side. But in this conversation, I am happy to move on, if you would like to. Um, to a related question, I'll admit, I'm a very, very, very casual observer of markets. And even I have seen that most experts seem to be worried about 
deflation and a few people are talking about inflation as a result of QE. Um, can you give us any idea what you think's going on and were you elected, what you might do about it? Well, look, I think the, the one thing that we've all got to um, accept is an element of humility uh, in the sense of, um, you know, nobody can really predict what's going to happen over the next few weeks. If the current trends continue and we continue to succeed in keeping the virus under control and doing the testing and tracing and uh, controlling the border well, and that and globally uh, we, we carry on in the broad path that we are, then you know you, you, you would see that the economy would slowly pick up and uh, eventually you know if, if, if there's excessive amounts of money and stimulus, then inflation could become a problem. Uh, but there's so much uncertainty out there. Uh, you know, there could be a second round. Economies could be much closed for much longer. The economic damage could be a lot worse. And then deflation would become more of an issue. So, uh, I mean, I think we need to be prepared for both our, uh, both possibilities. And um, the best, you know... How do you prepare for either of those possibilities? Well, I mean, like I say, I mean, it's focusing on what you can control, which is um, making doing everything you possibly can to get the economy opened up as soon as safely, and then doing the doing getting the health stuff done properly. Uh, again, you know, the, the mantra of the government has been we went hard and early. Well, yes, they did go hard on the lockdown. They certainly didn't go hard on you know dealing with the border effectively. Uh, we all you know the biggest shock in the whole uh, committee that we had was when uh, in the first week, well into the lockdown, we asked, well, what's happening? All these people keep arriving from overseas uh, and uh, walking through the airport, nobody checking them and going off into self-isolation for two weeks. And the Prime Minister said, oh, yes, but the police will check up on them. Then we asked the police commissioner and he said, oh, well, no, no, we didn't get around to that. Uh, so this <laughs> around the border. Uh, wasn't hard and early, uh, and the police seemed to have made a, a, an art form of focusing on, you know, having lots of cars on Tamaki Drive, uh, stopping people from walking too closely to each other. But the, the essential job of ensuring that people in, who are supposed to be in isolation coming from overseas, they weren't doing so. And likewise, on the t testing and tracing, uh, we've been slower than we could have been. So that's, you know, making sure that we do that stuff properly so that uh, if there is, and I'm sure there will be, because we haven't built up herd immunity to this uh, disease, there will be, uh, it will keep coming back and we'll have to keep on top of it. If we do that well and we get back uh, the economy opened up, then uh, that's the critical thing. And there will be a, a need for uh, a sh some short-term stimulus to the economy once we come out of this to, to, to keep get, get, get the thing going again. And uh, What kind of stimulus would you like to see? Well, you know, I mean, I think there, there are various options out there. What's a preferred one of yours? It's, it's something that we're, we're working our way through. Uh, uh, you know. Yeah, fair enough. That was mean of me. This is this is all changing very quickly, isn't well, it? Well, 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 it is. And, and you know, I mean, um, you know, we are in the context that there's a budget coming up in the next few weeks and we're considering our, how we want to position ourselves for it. So I'm not really sort of in the position to say, but, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the options are obvious in the sense of some sort of tax credit uh, some sort of tax changes, short-term tax relief, or something like that, uh, or cash payments. The, the the real risk with you know just a you know cash payment to everybody is that you know you know maybe half the population uh, who still have their jobs or you know have been getting superannuation or or a bunch of other things haven't had any material difference to their income, and so you know just, you know giving them extra money is 
perhaps not as um, useful as focusing the attention on those people who have lost their jobs and and and, um, and nowhere near as effective as uh, focusing on trying to reduce the number of business collapses in the first place. And that's the most important thing to do. But beyond that, I think, you know, the world hasn't changed. The virus hasn't changed the nature of what a successful economy is and, and how it uh, operates. And, you know, I, I firmly believe that you know, most of successful economies are driven by private sector investment, people, you know, taking a chance, starting a new business, taking a new venture on, uh, taking new people on, um, investing their money and uh, coming up with mad schemes uh, in order to, to do things differently. And uh, the best thing that good government does is, is creating an environment where people feel confident to do that. Uh, and that's uh, not sort of over-regulating them, not over-taxing them, not changing the rules, having clear rules that are properly enforced and letting people get on with it. Uh, and then on top of that, there is an absolute role for government uh, in creating a good environment in the sense of having um, um, a good quality infrastructure. And I think everybody will have noticed over the through this time, actually we've done pretty well out of the you know, excellent investment in ultra-fast broadband that the previous government made uh, that served the country very well. So that sort of infrastructure is important and, you know, and also good quality skills. You know, a, a climate where, where um, you know, where businesses and people have the opportunity to succeed uh, because that basic sort of uh, um, infrastructure is in place. So uh, anyway, the, the, that's where that's that's what I think continues to be important and will be important when we come out of this finally. I must admit, I think you might have given me a bit of a, a hint to the answer to the next question, but I'm going to forge ahead with it regardless. So when I think about the National Party, I think about three phases. Fortress New Zealand under Muldoon, free market reforms by Ruth Richardson, and then a more mellow key English area. Which of those approaches is closest to your own? Well, look, I mean, I think it's um, <laughs> it's not a it's not it's not a perfect question in the sense that each of those phases, to a degree, responded to the circumstances of the time. And uh, you know, the old Fortress New Zealand uh, wasn't correct, but it was a period when we were struggling as a country to figure out how to respond to the dramatic change in our fortunes when the United Kingdom joined the uh, EU and uh, we suddenly lost um, access to a big chunk of our export markets and and combined with the oil shocks uh, it was it was a period of uh, great trauma and um, we took a while to figure out how to respond to that and as a national in the end it was Roger Douglas who came up with the solution so um, and each period is, has has different kind of focus uh, the key English government had to grapple with the global financial crisis and um, and Christchurch earthquakes and and so what they might have had in mind at the start uh, was very much overtaken by events. Uh, but but you know in essence I, I think there is continuity through all that, which is a you know a fundamental belief in the importance of uh, freedom, individual choice, and and the private sector as a great driver of prosperity for New Zealand, and 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 the critical role of government of creating an environment where people feel confident to do that. And an aspirational view that New Zealand has a lot going for us. We have um, we produce things that the world want uh, and they're prepared to pay for. And uh, we've got a very bright future ahead of us if we do the basics well. And I think that was the story of the key years where we, uh, you know, gained confidence. 
I'm, I am going to say, though, Paul, I think that's very generous of you to apply that analysis to, at the very least, the Muldoon era, which I don't think can honestly be said to be driven by a trust and free enterprise. No. Uh, that was, a, that, 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 to be fair, that was a bit of an aberration. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'm getting more and more extreme by the minute. Forgive me. But if you were in charge, and I don't mean the National Party, I mean you, would New Zealand have things like a partly state-owned airline? Well, we're probably going to end up with a, a more than partly state-owned airline <laughs> uh, uh, with this crisis. And so, and no, I mean, I, I think the we were on the right track in terms of uh, gradually selling down state ownership in the airline. I, I, ultimately, though, you, you, on that example, you have a basic sort of choice to do you think it's important uh, for a country to have an airline? And if you do, uh, then that leads uh, the, the necessity to uh, help out in extreme situations such as this. Right. Well, I suppose I'm asking what choice you would make. Would you make the choice that it's important a country has its own airline? Yeah, I, I think I think it probably is uh, a, a place like New Zealand, which has a, a big focus on tourism and is isolated from the rest of the world. I, yeah, I do think there is a national interest in ensuring that we have a successful national airline, and um, it's it, it's certainly not best run by the state. But if uh, during periods of time the, the 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 nation invests in it and then slowly sells it down when times are good, then that's probably not a bad outcome. I see. It, like that's a little bit at odds with, I mean, a statement you made to me a moment ago, but also quite a lot of your statements made previously, including your own maiden speech, where, like, just to summarise, you talk about having effectively the correct infrastructure, sound laws, low inflation, and then an educated and willing workforce, and then getting out of the way. I mean, I, I don't think ongoing ownership of a state airline could could really be said to be true to that principle. Well, the, the the point is that yes, I, I mean, I agree that over time you would sell down the the ownership, and that's that's the path that we were on. But then uh, events happen, and you have a crisis where the entire aviation industry has been shut down, and you know, so you've got to be responsive and uh, deal with the situations that you face. But I'm sure that if we were back in government, we would look over time to uh, return it uh, uh, to the private sector over time you know so I didn't. would you be more drastic than that would you look at things like state-funded media well ah <laughs> uh, yeah you were asking all the, the the thorny questions uh i know i know this is meant to be nice but then i'm so excited to put all this to a free market politician i i kind of got ahead of myself <laughs> well there is a um uh, there's certainly uh an important role uh, constitutional role in in many respects of a um Free and independent media, uh, and I, I, I look, uh, you know, I think we've got to be careful to ensure that that we continue to have, you know, a good, robust media climate in New Zealand. It doesn't have to be state-owned, uh, but um, an element has been for a very long time, more than a hundred, well, not a hundred years, but eighty or ninety years, through Radio New Zealand uh, and also through One News. I, I think in hindsight, we would have been much better off uh, selling TVNZ uh, about 20 years ago when we would have got a lot of money for it <laughs> uh, than now. Uh, but uh, I, I think Radio New Zealand serves a very important role. And I, I find it very frustrating listening to the interviews uh, on many occasions, <laughs> but I do think it plays an important role uh, and uh, I wouldn't be in favour of getting rid of it. Okay. You and I have something in common, although correct me if I'm wrong, 
Um, I think we both voted for Labour and then changed our minds. What changed yours? I think I may have voted for Labour. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I, I can't even remember. <laughs> it was it, it was way back in, uh, it would have been the 1993 election if I ever did. Uh, and um, and I, I, I literally can't remember. And that was uh, after spending five years in a uh, left-wing history department at university. And I was, uh, you know, starting to become a little bit brainwashed by that period. Uh, but I quickly snapped out of it uh, once I got back out into the working environment and uh, uh, met characters like John Banks and uh, uh, people like him uh, and uh, got involved in politics uh, myself. So um, I wouldn't say that I was ever a kind of a lefty and suddenly converted uh, some at some point during my life. I've always... Uh, come from a, a, a national party perspective, which was one based on, you know, individual responsibility and choice and um, letting people get on with things in a, in a free and equitable society. You mentioned John Banks. Well, you've spent your career writing about several wealthy, successful men, including John Banks, I think. Uh, was that influential? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, um, the book I did on John Banks was my first. I was only 24, I think, at the time when I wrote his biography, uh, and um, that was my first connection with politics and um, got me involved in politics subsequently. But then for a, a period of about a decade, I was writing more or less full-time uh, on business history primarily and uh, about New Zealand businesses, uh, um, exporters of all... And, um, big companies, uh, and I've enjoyed it immensely, and it uh, very much shaped my thinking and my view of the world, and um, uh, it was it was a great period. Do you ever regret writing any of those books? I mean, you wrote one on Don Brash, didn't you? Did that ever have implications later down the line? Uh, no. Um, uh, no, I certainly don't regret uh, writing <laughs> uh, uh, Don Brash, I, I think, was... Uh, um, uh, an amazing character in many respects. And oh, wait, I don't doubt it, but he's a bit controversial, a bit polarizing. Yeah, yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with a bit of controversy. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, no, I enjoyed that. I mean, the last two books I did, uh, one was on Alan Gibbs, um, uh, a fascinating character and a great businessman, but also deeply involved in, in politics with the Business Roundtable and ACT Party and but also in the arts and um, and uh, an entrepreneur and engineer coming up with amphibious cars and things. So, uh, um, and then the other one was on Bill Gallagher, the electric fence manufacturer. And you know, I mean, some of the uh, you know the lessons were dramatic. Uh, I, I remember writing the one on Bill Gallagher during the Christchurch earthquakes or Canterbury earthquakes, and uh, I remember him saying, "Oh well, you know, my insurance premiums have gone up a." You know, a million bucks or whatever it was, and this was a real problem because his, you know, his customers in Germany and the United States didn't give us stuff what insurance costs in New Zealand were. They just wanted the products at the same price uh, or better, or they'd go to the opposition. And so he was having, you know, to find savings elsewhere or different ways of doing it in order to keep his price the same, and sweating hard to figure out how to do it. And at the time, I was on the Auckland Council uh, as well, and I remember going along to a council meeting soon thereafter and and having the um, the, the chief finance person at the council come along and say, oh, dear, our insurance premiums have gone up 
we'll we'll have to put the rates up uh, because the council cost of inflation has gone up, and uh, we you know that's just life. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, that different mindset when uh, between uh, that part of the economy that's based fundamentally on choice, uh, where people only survive in business if they give people what they want at the right price, and it's competitive, and it's tough, and it's relentless, and it requires endless innovation and enterprise to survive. And the contrast between that part of the economy and the other part, which is fundamentally based on force, uh, you don't sort of have any choice about whether you pay your rates or, or your taxes. If you don't, you go to jail or you have your house taken off you. And that that has a very uh, large impact in the way that they operate. Uh, and so uh, it is important to ensure that the that part of the economy that's based on freedom and choice is as large as possible. Uh, so that um, we can continue to be innovative uh, and also, um, um, you know, enjoy some prosperity. So, uh, you know, and there were endless other examples that that um, have very much shaped my outlook in life. How long have you had your eye on the Minister of Finance portfolio? Oh, well, I mean, it was, it's always been the area that I've been most interested in politics. People tend to like to uh, uh, mock the topic, but uh, one of the books I wrote was a history of the politics of tax in New Zealand uh, entitled We Won, You Lost, Eat That. Uh, was... You are talking to someone from the Taxpayers' Union, so yes. I, I will not mock you over that, I promise. Yes. Well, I, I'm sure you've studied it uh, uh, closely, but we, we um, uh, uh, that involved basically reading every budget uh, in the history of New Zealand, in, in, uh, which is something which I enjoyed immensely. And, and um, so I've um, uh, reckon, yeah, recognising that, you know, that, that fundamental dynamic of um, a big part of politics is fundamentally about taking money off some people and uh, giving it to other people. And uh, who you take it from uh, and who you give it to and how you spend it and the manner in which you do it and why you do it uh, is uh, incredibly uh, complicated and important and has an impact in, in the way that things operate. I got I, I got onto the topic really because I'd written a book on Douglas Myers and his family, a, a prominent businessman, uh, and um, his family had been sort of successful in brewing for about four generations. And it was striking the difference uh, between the, 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 the early generations who were very entrepreneurial and, uh, and the third generation, uh, his father, who was operating in the 50s and 60s and 40s and who, who wasn't at all um, business orientated, was very much just a steward keeping things ticking over. And, um, you know, when I thought about it, of course, the, the you know, the first guy that there wasn't any income tax at all when they started in the 1880s uh, and very low tax rates uh, in the early decades. But when the, the Douglas's father was in business in the 40s and 50s, the company tax rate was 70%. And the personal tax rate got over ninety percent at one point, uh, and so you know it's not so not surprising <laughs> that you might have a different attitude. Uh, but when I went and looked at the, the history books, you, you basically uh, it wasn't even a subject rate. And so if you know, look at if you read Michael King's history of New Zealand, which was a very sort of popular history of New Zealand, uh, is all about the wonderful things that the state did, but absolutely zero reference to how the money was changed and the transformation from a, a country where you know you had 
zero income tax uh, to one where um, you know huge slices of, of of income were being taken is dramatic and it's interesting and it's you know, it's a fascinating and um, complex topic and so um, which needed it struck struck me that it, it's um, worth worth studying and, and worth factoring into um, uh, how we go about doing things so that's a very long answer to say why I've, I've always been interested in the finance role well, indisputably, Paul, you have done your homework, but neither you nor Grant Robertson actually have any kind of formal economic training. What kind of experience is required to be Minister of Finance? Well, look, um, there's been, I don't think there's um, any particular rule book. <laughs> there must be a bottom line, you know. I, I, like- I, look, I think, I certainly don't think it helps to uh, I think it, it does help to have some broad experience uh, in um, in the business community I suppose and um, you know in effect I worked for myself either self-employed or running my own little business for 10 years and and um, and uh, you know paying the provisional tax and the GST and um, you know Understanding that if I didn't find a, a, a client next year, I wouldn't have anything to eat, sort of thing. And was that in PR? That, no, no, as a, as a writer. Oh, I see, I see. And um, and writing about you know, it, but the subject matter, which was the, the success or failure of, of businesses in New Zealand, was something that I've studied a very long time. So I certainly feel that it's been a very important part of my background and understanding uh, about how. Uh, business works and operates and how money is made in the economy and and the, the, the kind of levers behind it so um, in, in a sense I haven't had um, formal economics trainings but it but it's been very much a big focus of my career over 15 or 20 years um, but you know we've had finance ministers from all all manner of backgrounds and and um, you know ultimately you have a treasury there to support you, um, you know, actually counting the numbers and giving you advice. The political system that we have is one where you are relying on the uh, common sense collective wisdom of first a, a cabinet and second a caucus to sort of come up with sensible decisions on the basis of good advice. And um, that's why I've always sort of felt a, a degree of confidence in making those decisions when you know when I look around my caucus of 55 people with you know a deep and wide experience of of life and 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 perspectives uh, from across the country as well uh, which are you know which are enormously you know varying and um, you know there's a there's a very different outlook uh, between Winton and uh, Aremuera and um but if you put the put all those views and backgrounds and experiences together then you know you're not always going to get it right, but there's a good chance that you come up with a, a sensible sort of decision. And so you know there is a collective element to it. So I've had a little bit of a look at what's about what's available. Sorry, of the National Party economic policy, hmm. and to be completely honest, I didn't find a huge amount of detailed planning available. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Not at all. You, you obviously don't know where you don't know. Not very good at your internet searches. Uh, we released um, the uh, uh, our economic discussion uh, middle of last year um, with a great deal of um, detail about sort of five areas and lots of questions. And then we kicked off the year with the first of our. I mean, we sort of broke it down to five areas that would focus on. One is uh, regulatory reduction. The next one would be, well, around tax relief, a, a real focus on small business, uh, one on infrastructure, 
and and something in the in the kind of the family space. Uh, as you'll appreciate, however, uh, things have been somewhat uh, complicated by the, the the current crisis that we've got, uh, and so uh, we're going to have to rethink a lot of that. Not not necessarily the the broad framework. I think the broad framework is still sound, uh, but the, the timing of it and uh, certainly the financing of it and uh, the the sequencing of it will all be affected by our response to the uh, um, COVID-19 and, more importantly, the economic consequences of that. The election's in five months. When can we get a, a firm picture? I realise this is somewhat out of your hands, but what's what's your best guess? Oh, well, look, I mean, we'll, we'll be um, rolling. Well, I mean, the sands are sort of shifting uh, under our feet uh, every day, and so it's very hard to... And that's one of our primary complaints uh, against this um, government at the moment is they've been very thin with the detail and very hard to get any information out of the Treasury. And, um, you know, I mean, the, you know, the big question, for example, is there's 1.6 million people getting the wage subsidy uh, uh, at the moment. How many of those uh, don't really have a job at the end of it is a big unknown. And it could be a very large number or it could be, you know, not quite so large. And uh, that has, you know, very wide ramifications uh, going forward. So, look, we'll be... We'll be Putting some pretty clear markers down around the time of the budget, uh, when which is a month away, and then you know we don't know what the timing of the election is. Uh, assuming that it is in September, we'll be having to roll it out pretty quickly thereafter. So it's all going to happen quite fast. So before we before we end this, I think we should talk a little bit more about your background, starting right from the beginning. Where are you from? What was life like growing up? Uh, well, I grew up in uh, Mount Roskill. Suburb in, in Auckland. My dad uh, was a maths teacher, and uh, um, and my mother uh, a nurse. So a very um, standard kind of Kiwi uh, upbringing. I was the youngest of three, and uh, we lived on Dominion Road and uh, stayed there basically for my first twenty years or so. Uh, and um, went to Waikwai Primary and Intermediate, which were pretty, you know, not the not the greatest um, scholarly institutions that you'd ever encounter. But you know they um, uh, they, were, they, were, they were good schools in, in the broadest sense of the word, and uh, but then went to Auckland Grammar because my dad was a teacher there, and so I went out his own and following my brother to Auckland Grammar and had a great education there with John Graham in control with a real focus on academic hard work and excellence, uh, and then went off and studied history at university. So what did you do between university and joining politics? Well, my first job was at the Waitangi Tribunal, and uh, I, I uh, was contemplating going off and doing a PhD overseas. And uh, while I was doing mucking around, I got my first job there and um, doing historical research. And I, I lasted a year there, and uh, then something of a minor scandal of the, at the tribunal uh, leapt across to, to work for John Banks because I was doing that biography of him, <laughs> and. Um, I ended up enjoying uh, my time with John and politics and ended up working uh, for Simon Upton for three years as his press secretary and and then really enjoying foreign affairs sort of stuff. And uh, when the government changed, uh, having a year with Phil Goff, uh, who was the foreign affairs minister in the Clark government uh, as his press secretary. That's quite unusual, isn't it, for a press secretary to work for both major parties? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thought Phil was, you know, reasonably right wing, um, 
you know, he was an old Roger Nome uh, from the fourth Labour government, but um, with each passing year, he got a little bit less so. So anyway, I only lasted a year with him, and then I, I went into public relations for a couple of, two or three years, doing consulting work uh, with Fonterra and the University of Auckland and various groups um, through a consultancy. And then, which I enjoyed immensely, but but all the while I was writing books in in the in my spare time and weekends, and I decided to do that full time, um, and so did that for about uh, I don't know eight or nine years, uh, effectively writing a book a year, basically, and um, working from home and having a great time. I loved it. And nowadays, when you do get a weekend off, what do your weekends look like? Well, my my wife and I have got four kids and uh, the eldest is at university the youngest is 10 so um, one boy and three girls so my life is basically politics and and my uh, family and uh, so I spend my time chasing them around and uh, and if I get any spare time from that I like to do a bit of exercise play a bit of tennis play some piano and do the sort of normal things that one does okay three very quick fun questions to end this one, is it easier asking people to vote for you or not vote for you? <laughs> well, uh, the situation Epsom is a complicated one, and I, the only thing I'd say is it's harder than it looks. Okay. Um, what is the best country in the world other than New Zealand? <sighs> well, well, you got to admit the Auss- the Aussies have a good, uh, good, good quality of life as well. I think we're both uh, blessed in many respects. And do you secretly like being a little bit famous? <laughs> a little bit famous. Well, <laughs> um, uh, look, there are there are um, pluses and minuses uh, in the sense that uh, I enjoy uh, politics and I enjoy the the opportunity it brings to meet and engage with uh, people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, that you wouldn't necessarily run into in your normal normal life. A lot of us, you know, live in silos and different careers, and, and and but politics forces you to meet people from all walks of life, on the west coast through to Northland, to uh, um, uh, doing all sorts of different things, and that's endlessly fascinating, and it's an enormous privilege and something that I I, I relish. Fantastic! Thank you very much, Paul.